Hi everyone, it's V, host of Murder View Wrote. I just wanted to start this episode with a trigger warning. Um, there will be discussions of rape. There will be discussions of child abuse, of domestic abuse, murder, and torture. If any of these things are things you would find possibly upsetting, I don't suggest listening to this episode. And for God's sakes, please don't let your children listen to it. Um, as usual, I do not recommend any of these episodes for anybody under the age of 13. Thank you guys again for tuning in and let's get started with the show. Anyone who knows me knows that I have a obvious fascination with true crime, but I also have a particular interest in cults. And of course, maybe we all have some sort of insane interest in what makes people join cults and what about cults makes them so interesting. Usually we think of cults as being a bunch of crazy people in the woods who have these fringe beliefs that, you know, we think that we can never be involved in. And I think the question for me and what I find most interesting about cults is that a functioning cult needs people that are functional human beings, right? They need people in the group that are smart and intelligent and well-read. They need people who have money. They need people that have the ability to make money. So when we talk about the types of people that cults attract, very often people assume that it's something that can't happen to them. But very typically, the kinds of people that join cults are, are people that you and I interact with every day, whether it be a bank teller or your doctor or your children's friends at school or somebody that was a teacher at school when you went there. These people are very often not monsters. They're regular people like you and I, but something about them, something in them that is searching for more than what they have or a love that they don't think that they are receiving very often leads them to search out a higher power. And what happens is that they very often run into the type of cult leaders who are willing to exploit this need for love and this want to find a higher existential plane or power or meaning of life and they're able to manipulate that want and warp it into something truly terrible well the thing is that we ask ourselves well how are these people able to do that because much like everything else in the world some people are just really, really good at deception. Cult leaders, again, are not monsters, much like most murderers that we talk about on this show do not look like monsters. They look like the person next door and their ability to blend in, their ability to be charming and charismatic, their ability to essentially be con men or con people is what makes it so challenging to discern that they're murderers or rapists or kidnappers, or in this case, somebody who's going to lead you into a deadly cult. Today, we're going to talk about a less infamous cult, but one of the more deadly ones to exist in Canada. Um, this group is called the Ant Hill Kids, and they were led by a man named Rock Terrio. So with Canadian crimes, they are very much more 
tight-lipped about the details of crimes. They are very much more intent on making it difficult for people to profit and write books or stories about these crimes that take place, especially when there's murders or that, that type of thing involved because they like to be respectful of the victims and their families. So there's not a whole bunch known specifically about the Ant Hill kids. And when I was trying to do research for this particular episode, what I found was is that there is a movie called Savage Messiah and interesting enough, John Luke Picard played Rock Terrio in that movie. Um, I have not seen it, but um, at some point I think I will watch it. And I also found that there is a book that was written by two reporters who covered the story um, of the same name. I went on Amazon and eBay looking for a copy of this book to try to do research. I was only able to find a copy that was going to cost me $250. So obviously I did not uh, buy that, but I'm going to do my best to flesh out the important details about Rock Terrio, about the Ant Hill Kids, a lesser known cult, and what drives very seemingly normal people to do things that they would never think of doing before. So we'll get to that part when we discuss some of the psychology behind cults and particularly the Ant Hill Kids and particularly Rock Terrio. But for right now, we're gonna start at the very beginning and we're gonna get to know Rock Terrio and then we'll go from there. Because what happens is what starts out as seemingly a group of people who want to live much as most people in the 60s and 70s did. They wanted to be a part of the counterculture. They believed that they were in a religious cult that was doing God's work. And they wanted to live off the grid in the woods. And they wanted to be left alone to grow their own vegetables, bake their own bread and worship God in the way that they saw fit and felt like they weren't bothering anybody. So how do you get from being a member of a religious commune and the press and psychologists saying that everyone should leave you alone and that you are doing God's work and turning over a new leaf and it was something to behold to getting to a space where you are performing unauthorized medical procedures on your followers having reports of abuse done on you having yourself committed to a hospital for psychiatric evaluation and ultimately ending the death of one of the many wives that you have taken over the course of your time in this cult and that's what we're going to explore today how do we get from outlier religious sect who has not harmed anybody to murder And I don't know that we ever really have the answers for that, but today we'll try. So let's find out what happens when your religious cult or your religious sect turns into a perfect storm for abuse, rape, and murder. You are now listening to Murder V Wrote. I'm your host, V.
Rock Terrio was born in Quebec on May 16, 1947, to parents Hyacinth and Perret Terrio. He was the second of seven children and the eldest boy. At the age of six, the family of Rock, who would later say he played with wild bears, moved with the family to the community of Thetford Mines in the eastern townships. The town's local school went up to the seventh grade, and none of the Terrio kids went any further. Not even young Rock, who was bright, outgoing, and seemed to enjoy learning. And although Rock would later describe his parents, particularly his father, as abusive, Hyacinth, his mother, denies ever having beaten the boy. And really, even in his youth or earliest conversations with Rock, he himself almost never complains about this abuse or brings it up again later. His mom, Hyacinth, was a laborer, but she was devoutly religious and a member of a group called the Union of Electors, which is also known as the Beret Blancs, or White Berets, um, on account of their signature mission uniform, which, of course, included a white beret. Um, this is a Catholic fascist offsuit, um, and between mass and his father's forced door-to-door white beret literature distribution campaigns, Rock very quickly developed a deep hatred for, Catholic, for the Catholic faith and in particularly organized religion. Um, I think that the idea of being forced to worship in a very specific way, one that he didn't necessarily agree with, kind of pushed him away from the church and away from Catholicism, particularly. Um, Rock, aside from this deep-seated hatred of Catholicism, really didn't complain about much of a child. Um, and he passed with passed through this, these phases with a relatively uneventful adolescence. Um, but as he grew older, he discovered that complaining about his childhood was a great way to get sympathy. Between this and his interest in a number of topics, it gave the illusion of a penetrating intelligence for which he was often praised, even by psychiatric evaluators after his first arrest. And we'll get there. And he really came to crave the attention and spotlight that came with this sympathy and this idea of him being smarter than the average person. This desire was readily satisfied by his physical presence and by his penchant for showmanship. He also found that spirituality was very attractive to women. On November 11th of 1967, he married Francine Grenier, a girl from the next town over. They moved to Montreal, and over the next three years, they had two sons together, uh, Rock Jr. and Francois. Uh, during this time, Rock Sr. developed severe ulcers, which had to be excised surgically, and later developed complications from the surgery. He would have this persistent discomfort of his digestive system um, pretty much throughout the rest of his life, and it fostered a certain irritability on Terrio's part. He also became obsessed with medicine during this period and taught himself a great deal about anatomy. So I'll put my own input here. And here's the thing. I've, I've taken A&P. I've had labs. Do I think that you would be able to look at diagrams and memorize where things are on your own? Absolutely, because when you're taking class, that's essentially at some point what you are required to do. You do kind of have to know what bones 
are where and what muscles are where and what they connect to. And unfortunately, the only way to kind of do that for most people is root memory. However, a fascination with anatomy and physiology does not a surgeon make. So I don't know what the psychology is for that particular part. But again, we'll get there. After he's done this medical research and taught himself all of these things about anatomy, he decides to move his family back to Thetford Mines and he begins developing his skills with woodworking, which keep in mind he has to provide for his family and he only has a seventh grade education because that's as far up as the school went. He really settles into life back in Thetford Mines as an adult and ingratiates himself into the community. He becomes involved in politics. He joins, I guess, what would be considered the French analog of the Shriners Club. Um, he would use his personal platforms and connections in the community um, to essentially parody Catholic you know, parodied Catholic face and denounced Catholicism, despite the Catholic roots of all the other members. He also acquired a new interest in sex and sexuality, and it is one that was not in entirely appreciated by his wife or in-laws. He also took up drinking heavily. He was using his amateur wood sculpting cells as an excuse to go out to Thetford Mines uh, to Quebec City on the weekends and carry on these trysts with women that he met there. Giselle, as we'll call her, was one such woman. Eventually, Terrio's finances gave way, and a local credit union repossessed his house in Thetford Mines, and his wife Francine washed her hands of Rock and said she was done, and Rock took this as an opportunity to um, take up with Giselle, who he had met in Quebec City. And although he was having sexual intercourse with her on a regular basis, to keep up appearances, he made a bed in the back of his truck so that it would appear that his scruples and religious convictions forbade him from sleeping with a woman to whom he was not married. It's about this time in his life that Rock Terrio discovered the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The Adventist Church was ministered by a gentleman named Pierre Zita, and they met in a local motel room every Saturday. Rock became their most devoted follower, and he began following Adventist nutritional structures and quit drinking. In fact, his enthusiasm for God's work began to unsettle many of the other church members, and his boastfulness irritated those who knew about his limited education. Essentially, he gloated a lot and pretended to be higher up and smarter than he actually was and as a nod to another great true crime podcast that i listened to uh date with dateline with um kimberly and katie hi guys i know you're not listening but love the show um god grant me the confidence of a mediocre white man <laughs> so rock became fascinated with the old testament with its strict codes and masculine authority he was fixated on these things and he was also fascinated like most cult leaders with the apocalypse and the book of revelations uh he particularly was interested in its message of violent retribution for sin and the end times and the division of the human race into the elect and the uh, reprobate to make money terrio began selling the adventist literature door to door when he proved himself quite capable in this particular enterprise 
um, PRD to begin giving him workshops to lead on quitting smoking. And that's traditionally a gateway for Adventist evangelism. That's how they get people to come to meetings. They essentially run clinics that are supposed to be for smoking cessation. And that leads into the idea of religion and passing out religious uh, pamphlets and discussing with them, uh, becoming a part of the church. He soon proved to be very, very good at this um, because, as we said before, Rock is very charismatic. He's very charming. He's very outgoing. And those things typically make a person a very good salesperson. Um, the other thing that normally makes a very a person a very good salesperson is the ability to essentially smell blood in the water. And I know that is maybe a horrible way of putting it, but in order to be very good at sales, you have to be able to hone in on the things that you can exploit about a person or things that will make a person more likely to purchase from you. So maybe they're con concerned about the end of the world in this case, or maybe they're concerned about being closer to God, or maybe they're concerned that they're sinning too much. Whatever it is, Rock was able to play on those concerns and sell a lot of this literature and propaganda. And by 1977, he had amassed himself a number of followers of him specifically. Um, these followers included uh, Solange Boyard, who was 21, uh, Chantelle Labrie, who was 19, Francine Laflamme, she was 18. Nicole Ruel, who was 20. Um, a person whose name will remain unnamed, but we will refer to her as Maurice. 18. Uh, Jose Pelletier, uh, who was 20. Jacques Fissette, who was his mid-20s. Uh, Claude Oyette, who was 24. Jacques Guierge, who was 24. And his wife, uh, Marseille Grenier, who was 23, and their six-month-old daughter. Um, all of these people, plus Rock, begin hanging around in Giselle's apartment. And though most of these girls were still living at home with their parents, because this was, again, 1977, and that is what you did, um, they would often just spend the entire weekend at Giselle's house um, on the couch, on the floor, wherever there was space. And Terrio encouraged all of them to drop out of college because after all, Christ was coming soon. So there wasn't much of a point to learning skills to get by in a world that was already doomed. Why do you need college when the world is going to end, right? Sometimes Giselle would become jealous of the attention that the girls lavished on rock, but he had expressed interest in becoming a priest and had committed to total sobriety. So she really kind of shrugged it off and felt like, okay, I'm just being crazy as a priest and a sober person. Like he has no interest in doing anything untoward with these girls. He just wants to be a religious leader. Um, and even she realized that it wouldn't take much for Terrio to seduce any of them if that's what he really had in mind. They were that devoted to him. One of Rock's Adventist ministers began to fear that the group of disaffected youth, as they were referred to, were more attracted to Terrio personally than they were to the church. And I think this is in some ways where the idea of the quote-unquote cult of personality comes from. You or people, psychologically, like 
a per what a person stands for personally. They like their personality. They like the charm, the cares, the charisma that they exude, that je ne sais quoi, that thing that you cannot capture, that lightning in a bottle. And that is what they are devoted to, not to the church, not to the teachings, not to God, but to this human person who is infallible. And sometimes they don't realize that until it's too late. In 1977, which later in the year, he and his followers attended a Adventist retreat um, in the woods of Muskoka, Ontario. Here he met uh, Gabrielle Lavallee and Yolande Gwynnebert, who joined the group as well. The natural scenery um, in the woods of Muskoka apparently made a huge impression on Rock. And in fact, at one point during the retreat, he went hiking by himself climbed up on a rocky outcropping. He said that he had a vision in which the sky was lit up with a white radiance and the voice of God told him that the outcropping on which he was about to kneel was a holy place. This was probably the first incident of what would become the ruling element in the lives of the people who had taken to following Ontario. So with the first entourage of his, the eight living followers, Giselle, Chalange, Solange, Chantel, Francine, Nicole, Gabrielle, Jacques, and Claude, um, Rock started to get a growing reputation as a healer. And a, you have sympathetic connections with the Seventh-day Adventist health food and mission literature suppliers. And so Terrio decided it was time to move his band from Thetford Mines. So they move and he establishes a place in Santa Marie. Um, and that's about 65 kilometers south of Quebec City. Here they open a healthy living clinic, an alternative medicine venue where you could get organic foods and holistic literature to help you cure any ailment, any ailment that you may have. And, you know, cash up front, of course. Terrio insisted that they all start to wear uniforms at this point. So the uniform was an ankle-length pullover tunic, green for the women, beige for the men, with Rock wearing a dark brown robe of a similar cut. So not only is he making money from this health clinic venture, he's also attracting other followers. And so several of the clinic's patrons would volunteer time or financial donations because they really are enjoying what they're getting from this healthy living clinic. One particular patron, Leo Mark Foscher, sold all of his worldly possessions to fund the clinic and then moved in with his wife and child. Jacques and Marseille Grenier did likewise with Mar uh, Maurice and Josier Pelletier rejoining the group at this point. A strange dynamic to call of the group with all of the women, except uh, Marseille Grenier, who really hated being there but was with her husband, competing for Rock's attention. Eventually, Giselle, who was his girlfriend, became very concerned that she might lose Rock to one of the other women, and she took the initiative to propose to him herself. I will never advocate proposing to men. Um, I'll just say that. There are a lot of things in the world that patriarchy are based on and considering that we still all have to live in the patriarchy, the least you could do is just let him propose to you probably, but what do I know? A week later, Rock agreed and they were married on January 8th, 1978 at the Adventist Church in Montreal. 
there was no honeymoon sucks for you Giselle and the group piles back into the van that they took to get to the church for a five-hour drive home with Terrio joking with the other girls the all the whole entire way home in fact Giselle cried on a mattress in the back increasingly convinced that it had all been a way to submit his relationship with the Adventists with a display of sincerity so basically he used the marriage um, as a way to ingratiate himself to church members and appear more authentic and more sincere in his teachings and want to be a priest. The, Ad the Adventists weren't cons really convinced by this, but um, Pierre Zita tried approaching the parents of many of these young girls and tried to convince Giselle to, to leave Rock. But Terry's place in the hearts of his followers was too deep for family members or friends to displace. Even when the police came at the behest of the families of some of these girls, they refused to speak to them. Rock Terry was their elected face to the outside world. And even when local businessmen began filing into the police station to complain about unpaid bills, the police, police's hands were tied. In March of 1978, Geraldine Gagin Claire was admitted to the Healthy Living Clinic. So Geraldine had been undergoing treatment for leukemia in Quebec City, and things seemed to be going well. She was responding to the treatments. She was starting to gain some of her health back, and it was possible that in a few months her cancer would have been in remission. But Claire's husband, who was referred to as M., met the very charismatic Rockterio and was convinced that all the medicines and things that his wife was taking to combat her leukemia weren't good for her. Rock convinced him to let Rock visit Geraldine while she was in the hospital, where Rockterio got into a loud argument with the doctors over the matter of Geraldine's treatment, particularly about the amount of drugs they were giving her. Rock convinced M to check the 38-year-old Geraldine out of the hospital and into his healthy living clinic where even Geraldine's own father was not permitted to visit her. Rock Terrio's treatment for leukemia, you ask? Grape juice and organic foods. Geraldine Gaguin, a Claire, died in the healthy living clinic. Terrio told his followers that he had gone into her room and kissed her and she awakened from death, but that in the end, you know, when God wants people, he takes them. It was Geraldine's time. During the same period of the clinic's existence, the parents of a 19-year-old multiple sclerosis victim, Gabrielle Nandu, placed her under the care of, the, of Terrio, who they had met in an anti-shopping workshop, an anti-smoking workshop. Sorry about that. Forgive me if the sound quality is not great today, I live in West Texas, and as you know, out here, or if you don't know, we have a lot of dust and a lot of dust storms. We are experiencing a high wind advisory today, so the wind is rattling the windows a bit. Um, I will try to get the sound quality as great as I can, and hopefully you aren't hearing too much of that. But back to the story. So at this point, this healthy living clinic has killed one person who should have been on treatments for leukemia at her hospital and instead they gave her grape juice and berries until she died and then we have another child who has multiple sclerosis and her parents have essentially signed her over to this man with no real medical training 
but taught them to pray really hard when they wanted to smoke a cigarette. And for them, that seemed to be enough. In April of 1978, Terrio was voted out of the Seven-Day Adventist Church, which, duh. Um, and this was on Pierre Zita's initiative. Um, he just was like, I don't think that this is good for the church. I don't think he's sincere. I think that there's something off and sinister about him, and I would just rather him not be a part of the church. Everyone agreed, but this did not phase Terrio one bit. And his next move was to marry his particular followers together in spite of the fact that he had no authority to perform marriages whatsoever and that his followers had actually not expressed any interest in getting married whatsoever and especially least of all to each other. Claude Oyette was paired with Solange Boyard and Jacques Fissette with Nicole Ruel. Solange invited her parents to the ceremony and on the advice of their priests, they decided to attend so they could show their daughter that they still loved and supported her should she ever decide she wanted to come home. The parents report <laughs> that Rock's wedding ceremony was not what they expected, to say the least. Terrio gave a rambling speech and stressed the women's role of subservience to the man and the idea of revelation and end times. Some of the women in Solange's family wept and obviously not for joy. That spring, his girlfriend Giselle, pregnant and feeling rejected by the lack of attention that Rock was giving her since they got married, gave her new husband an ultimatum. Either break the commune and encourage his followers to find new homes or she would move back in with her father. Terrio's answer was to smash her in the mouth with his fist and forbid her to leave their room for two days. In June 1978, in spite of his financial success, the Healthy Living Clinic faced some serious problems. First, there were outstanding debts. Second, the constant police surveillance to which they had been subjected since murdering a cancer patient. And then third, the cutting off of health food and missionary literature supplies from the Seventh-day Adventists after they had excommunicated Terrio from their, from their ranks. So Terrio's idea was, we should just move. They loaded everyone into the vehicles and they set out. They wandered from town to town for about a month. And in July, they found themselves in the wilderness of the Gaspe Peninsula. And it was here that Terrio disclosed to the group his vision of the future. Terrio told the group that the world would end on February 17th, 1979, amid a storm of boulder-sized hail, earthquakes, and lightning. They, the commune, would become God's chosen, but only if they made a righteous life for themselves in the scrub of these Appalachian foothills. Terry, of course, would be their guide. I will also pause here to say that with every cult or religious leader that I've ever heard of, if they give you an exact date for when the world is supposed to end and it doesn't happen, well the paradigm very often shifts, doesn't it? Because now you have to explain to your followers why they're still there suffering or whatever it may be when you told them that the world would end and clearly it does not. So the group set out on foot into the hills of the village of St. Georges on July 9th of 1978. They hiked for two days until they found an isolated hill beside a small body of water called Lac Sec or Dry Lake. 
they decided that they would name the little mound Eternal Mountain, and it was here that the group made their home. They erected a tent town and spent a week retrieving tools from cars and then began construction on one large communal cabin. They worked for 17 hours a day clearing the land and occasionally getting supplies from the village. Jacques Bisset and Claude hacked at the ground with a shovel and pickaxe where the cabin would be, working all summer to dig a well. And when they finally reached the water table, Rock declared it a miracle. They worked in their tunics, and when tipping, tripping over these became inconvenient and dangerous, Rock commissioned new uniforms. Dark blue wraparound short trifts. Terrio rationed the food, and if anyone complained about anything, like hunger, he would punish them by further restricting their rations. Of course, Terrio's stomach pains and quote-unquote cancer prevented him from participating in any of this labor. His role was much more important to the group's spiritual salvation, after all. Impressing upon his followers that everyone in the outside world, most especially their families, were active oppressors of the righteous who were doomed to lie dead for all of eternity for the unforgivable harm they had inflicted upon these poor, innocent souls. For example... And for some of them, this was all too much. Yolande Gwynebert, who was one of the later converts to the group, who had joined when her friend Gabrielle Lavalli, um had joined when they were at the Adventist uh, resort or retreat, headed back to France, claiming that her passport expired. One of their patrons from the Healthy Living Clinic, Leo Marc Faucher, who uh, had joined with his wife and child and had given Terrio all of their money, loaded their meager possessions and their family into a wagon and headed back for civilization. And Rock did nothing to stop them, but he made sure and made sure that it was clear that Fosher and Yolande Gwynebert were evil in the eyes of God. When it was all done in September, the cabin consisted of a single open room with a floor made with pounded wooden rounds with the well in the center, a ceiling made of mossy twig bark covered logs, and the rooms consisted only of a few meter high partition and bed sheets hung as curtains. This was to be their home until God began his thousand rain thousand year reign on earth. It was also a place of merriment where Terrio would organize skits and songs, and to commemorate their new life, Terrio gave them all new names from the Old Testament. He himself became Moses, leader of the Exodus from the depraved modern world. He was their papi, and his wife Giselle was their mami. And with the collective welfare checks of everyone in the group, they had a monthly budget of $1,400 Canadian. In October, the six-month pregnant mammy, mami, Giselle went to Moses, and she said the girls that were not married were lonely. Terrio relayed this insight to the other girls, thus giving them the impression that Mami had been the first to think of it. A few nights later, Nicole Ruel, whom Rock had married to be very uninterested in this Jacques Fisset, confided that she and Moses had had intercourse while everyone else was working. This hurt Giselle immeasurably, and she fled from the cabin, but an enraged Terrio pulled her down and squeezed his hands around her throat, choking her. Scared and afraid for her life, Giselle agreed to return to the compound. Before we get back into the story of Rock Terrio and the Ant Hill Gang, we're going to talk about the psychology of cults. As I said in the opening of this episode, cults are fascinating and they 
have a tendency to capture the attention of everybody. And there are questions abound about them. Where do these people come from? What are they really doing inside of those secluded compounds? Most interesting, perhaps, are the psychological components of this and the questions such as who in the world would fall for that? Or in an effort to answer these questions, let's go over some important aspects of the psychology of cults. So the first thing to know is that cults are attractive because they promote an illusion of, of comfort. Humans desire comfort and in a fearful and uncertain world that we live in, many people turn to cults because they tend to promote exactly that. Um, John Patrick Peterson, who's a psychologist at Caltech, has pointed out that cult leaders often make promises that are totally unattainable, but they're not offered by any other group in society. And these type of things can include financial security, total health, constant peace of mind, and eternal life. And these are things that every human desires on the deepest levels. Cults also satisfy an innate human desire for absolute answers, which is something that obviously life can not give us. Life is full of unanswered questions and, you know, turmoil and uncertainty. And so to, today's world can be tough. And with more abstract issues than there are issues that are black and white, uh, Dr. Adrian Furnab describes to Psychology Today that humans really crave clarity. And many people join cults because they believe they're being offered solid and absolute answers for questions like good versus evil, religion, the meaning of life, politics, etc. And many cult leaders promote messages that are simple and seem to make sense. And the exact opposite is what we're being provided with in typical everyday life. Typically, people with low self-esteem are more likely to be persuaded to be in a cult environment, which is something that people are often surprised to learn. The people that join cults are, for the most part, average people. They come from all backgrounds, zip codes, and tax brackets. But research done over the past two decades has found an interesting pattern. Many people that are successfully recruited by cults are said to have had low self-esteem. Cults generally try not to recruit people with certain um, disabilities, handicaps, or clinical depression per se. However, people with low self-esteem are easier to break down, and then they build them back up in an effort to teach them that the cult is the supportive environment that they're looking for. This can also be seen in the fact that new recruits are very often love-bombed. Um, once people have been recruited by the cult, they are often quote-unquote love-bombed. Um, if you aren't really aware of what love bombing is, or you may have heard it used in a particular way of talking about dating red flags. So essentially love bombing is not necessarily confined to the dating world. It is something that also happens with cults. Um, this phrase basically describes the ways in which someone with so with low self-esteem can be consistently flattered and complimented and seduced in order to train their brain to associate the cult or a romantic interest with love and acceptance. And then that love and acceptance is then used to guilt the person if they try to leave or decide that they want to break things off or leave the cult in this case. So what that looks like a lot of time is, you know, oh, we love you so much. We accept you for who you are. You're so great. And there's never that part of loving and accepting a person that requires them to talk about things that the person has done to make them unhappy or 
really talk about ways that the person needs to work on themselves. It is always love. It is always an over exaggeration of love and constant flattering and attention and, and positive compliments to the point that the person is getting all of this positive feedback from one place. And so they don't want to give that up. As you may know, women are more likely to join cults than men. And according to the research on the fact, women make up a whopping 70% of cult members around the globe. Psychologists have differing ideas about why more women than men join cults. Dr. David Bromley of the Virginia Commonwealth University points out that women simply attend more social gatherings, whether they are religious or otherwise. This makes women statistically more likely to join groups that will ultimately victimize them. Others suggest that it has to do with the fact that women have been oppressed for much of human history. Therefore, they're more comfortable being under an authority figure. Still, others write this off as total crock, which Emma Klein, the author of a best-selling cult-themed novel, The Girls, theorizes that young women are often taught to seek the attention of man and wait for rescue, sort of the knight in shining armor syndrome. Um, and so joining a cult, says Emma Klein, is a way for many young women to feel as though they are seizing their destiny. They are not waiting for the man to come rescue them. They are going to the man to be rescued. Uh, the other thing that is interesting about cults um, is that a lot of these people have rejected, rejected mainstream religion. Um, Dr. Stanley H. Kath, who is a psychoanalyst and psychology professor at Tufts University, has treated more than 60 former cult members over the course of his illustrious career. Um, and from this unique firsthand experience, Kath has noticed an interesting trend. Many people who join cults have experienced religion at some point in their lives and rejected it. Perhaps this is surprising considering many cults tend to be religious or at least claim to be. But Dr. Kath asserts that this trend is a sign of something deeper. Many of those who join cults are intelligent young people from sheltered environments. And growing up in such an environment, says Dr. Kath, often means that many have a history of failing to achieve intimacy, of blaming others for their failures, and constantly striving for perfectionist goals. And these characters, their characteristics often make them prime targets for cult recruitment. Well, the next question you may have is, well, how are you able to brainwash or exhibit control over people? And cults do this by my, and maintain their power by promoting an us versus them mentality. Cults prove powerful because they're able to successfully isolate members from their former non-cult lives. And one way that cult leaders achieve this is to convince followers that they are superior to those not in the cult. This us versus them mentality ultimately leads to cult members isolating themselves socially from friends and family. They replace those relationships with new ones inside the cult. Um, this is very common practice for more for most cults. You get in and initially you are still able to have contact with your friends and family, but because these people are love bombing you, as we talked about prior, giving you the attention and validation and answers or filling a void for you and giving you a black and white answer to the abstract questions that you feel like you have been lacking in your life, then you exalt this person that is the cult leader above other people and the life you had previously. So when the people in your life, your friends and family who are not cult members come to you and say, hey, this is a cult. I think these people are brainwashing you are 
main thought as humans is, well, how could that be? These people love me so much. They accept me so much. They want to see me happy. They give me answers and fulfill me in a way that I wasn't getting in my regular life with my friends and family. So if my friends and family say that these people are bad, maybe they don't want me to be happy. Maybe they're jealous. Maybe they just don't understand, but they've never loved and accepted me the way this cult does. And because I'm in this cult, I'm special. I'm more special than everyone else. And so if my friends and family don't get it and they don't want to join too, then maybe they aren't special. And if the cult leader says I should break ties with them, then that's what I should do. Cult leaders are also masters of mind control. Cult leaders convince their victims to separate themselves from their family and society like we talked about, and they give up their you know personal possessions and sometimes huge sums of money. They convince people to buy into whatever they're promoting and to do all this, the cult leader must be a master at mind control. And ways in which leaders gain control over cult members can vary, but we'll talk about a few popular methods here. Um, that can include public humiliation. Uh, new cult members, again, like we said, maybe loved bomb shortly after their arrival, but once they are established members, cult leaders often maintain emotional control through various exercises meant to publicly humiliate a member. One such method involves someone sitting in a chair surrounded by other members at which they are able to, you know, they're required to admit failures or base thoughts or shortcomings or things that would be potentially embarrassing to admit in front of a room full of people. Self-incrimination. A favorite tactic of infamous cult leader Jim Jones was self-incrimination, and that requires cult members to provide their leader with written statements detailing their individual fears and mistakes. The cult leader can then use these statements to shame individual members publicly if they fall out of grace with them. This is also something that we saw made famous by Keith Raniere's um, cult or self-help improvement group or MLM, whatever you want to look at it as Nexium um, and their offshoot of women's empowerment, slave racketeering situation that he's in jail for um, called DOS. Um, so in DOS, women were basically branded and told that they would have people that they were in charge of and those people that they were in charge of were called their slaves and they were the slaves masters but in order to be a part of dos you had to provide collateral and what this collateral was you had to basically write out incriminating things about yourself whether they be true or not so that the leaders would have these just in case you ever decided you wanted out they could publicly embarrass you Brainwashing. Cult leaders are known to repeat various lies and distortions until members find it difficult to distinguish between reality and cult life. And unfortunately, if the life that you live every day is in the cult with people who think like you and like this, then very often you have no outside frame of reference anymore because you've been cut out from your friends and family. There's also paranoia. Uh, and to maintain the false sense of, con you know, control and comfort, cults often rely on paranoia tactics. Cult leaders convince their victims that a group, their families, or the government is out to get them, but that the cult can provide safety from that. And once a cult member comes to the conclusion that their families and the country can't keep them safe, they begin to worship and put all of their faith into the cult leader. Jim Jones was especially skilled at this mind control trick. He would encourage members to spy on one another and consistently spoke through loudspeakers at all hours of the day so that cult members would hear his voice, whether they were awake or asleep. 
And one thing that we obviously know, cult members often have no idea that they're in a cult. Although it's obvious to everyone around them, people in cults often don't realize that they've become a part of one. Psychologist Dr. Margaret Thaler Singer spent most of her career studying the psychology of cults and brainwashing. She found that most people enter cults willingly without realizing that the power is bound to have over them. Singer theorizes that this is partly because some people are more willing to see the perceived benefits than the potential dangers. She also mentions that many people assume cults are only religious, though in truth, cults can be political groups, lifestyle groups, or business groups. This is something that we see with people that are in multi-level marketing scams. Uh, cult life can have a very dangerous and lasting effect, obviously. Cult victims often spend years overcoming the emotional damage incurred during their time spent with the cult. Psychologists who treat former cult members routinely describe the long-term effects of being in a cult environment can have on the human body. Dr. John G. Clark Jr. is a Harvard psychiatry professor and a co-founder of a nonprofit group which treats former members and their families. He specifically mentions that the symptoms of temporal lobe epilepsy are similar to those seen or reported as resulted from cult conversations or cult conversions, increased irritability, loss of libido, or altered sexual interests, ritualism, and compulsive attention to detail, mystical states, humorlessness, and sobriety, heightened paranoia. So I say all of this to say that there's a lot that goes into the psychology of cults, and I just kind of wanted to touch base with you. Obviously, this is very bare bones, um, and there is much more to it because it is a very specific science that has been studied extensively over the past 20 years. Um, obviously, as our story continues, we're going to see a lot of these themes played out with the Ant Hill Kids and Rotterio. So let's get back to the story. So when we last left off, Moses had forced Giselle to agree to come back to the compound by choking her to death. And after this, he declares that all the marriages at the commune, other than the ones between himself and Giselle, are void. He then begins marrying all the women to himself, including Gabrielle Nadeau, the 20-year-old multiple sclerosis patient who he was supposed to be treating with his health regimen, um, although he didn't apparently try to have intercourse with her or anything like that. He did have sex with his other wives, um, and the rebellious Solange was the last to fall to his wiles. The one exception was Marseille Grenier, the outsider. She simply was not having it, and good for her. When the Jonestown massacre occurred later that year in November, uh, Terrio follow followed the story with keen interest. He even claimed to have a vision of the event from the year before. But they now had a very pressing problem as, well, doomsday cults were now a household concern and families of Terrio's followers renewed their attempts to disrupt the group because, you know, who wants their kids to fall victims to a cult? The police wanted to take him into custody, but lacked the evidence that he was a danger to himself or others. Nevertheless, Terrio went willing with them and underwent psychological evaluation. He claimed he wasn't the leader of any group and that the commune was a democracy and that they lived in peace without any promiscuity. He conveniently left out the parts about food rationing, abuse, and his polygamous harem, apparently, because the authorities realized that while he was a delusional crank without any proof that he was a dangerous delusional crank, they really couldn't do anything and had to release him. 
at this point, Marseille Grenier is beginning to think about leaving. And um, to keep her from leaving, Terio instructed her husband, Jacques Guerre, um, who is legally this woman's husband, but not her husband, according to Moses, because he's married to everyone, to cut off her toes with an axe as a punishment for wanting to leave the group. When Guerre balked and said, no, I'm not going to cut off my wife's foot or toes, Terio began to taunt him. He called him a faggot. He told him, you don't have any balls. And he said that if he wanted to be a man, that he would need to learn how to, quote, teach your woman a lesson. When Gierge began to cry, Terio grabbed the axe and threatened to cut off all of Marseille's toes himself. Reluctantly, Gierge took the axe and severed one of Marseille's pinky toes. After that, Gierge became Moses' main enforcer. The prophesied day, February 17th, came and went without any second coming. According to Terio, divining exact dates from the messages of God was difficult business for mortals as time passes differently for God than it does for us. To the shock and horror of the families of Terio's followers, this was enough to keep the group together. After all, the end could come any day now. Chantelle Labrie's parents obtained a court order for a round of psychiatric tests for their daughter. When two police officers showed up at the compound, however, Terio repelled them and wouldn't let them in. One month later, only four days after Quebec City's Le Sol published a story on the group entitled They Are Happy and Free to Leave If They Wish, which referred to Terrio as the group's spiritual father, and which included quotes from an interview with FLED member Jacques Set, in which he stated that the group was democratically run. Ten police officers set a helicopter down on the Eternal Mountain. They arrested Terrio for obstruction of justice, and he was ordered by the court to undergo psychological evaluation at Quebec City's hospital. Giselle maintained the morale and isolation of the commune during his absence, and when family members of the other cult members tried to visit them and try to get them to come home while Rock was gone, they retreated coldly and the members of the cult made it very clear that they were unwelcome and, and no one was leaving. Meanwhile, Terrio was ingratiating himself to the doctors. He claimed that he had saved these children from self-destruction and drugs and put them back on the right track. The director of the hospital at which Terrio was confined would begin referring to him as Moses and expressed his scorn for the public that it reflexively assumed that just because Terrio had a different lifestyle, he had been sent for evaluation. He was crazy. He was actually released from the hospital early and judged fit to stay in trial for obstruction of justice and given a one-year suspended sentence. The media began to portray him as a gentle mountain man that had run afoul of a prejudiced industrial society. If psychiatric, in the eyes of his followers, this only proved that he was in fact an emissary of God, just as he said he was. Because the psychiatric experts couldn't find anything wrong with him from their position of objectivity, how could they, his most intimate family, find anything wrong with him? At this point, Terrio abandoned the Adventist diet that he was on and he began to eat meat and junk food. He began to prostitute Gabrielle to a local grocer for some milk, meat, and cheese. He also started drinking again after two years of being sober. First communion wine, and then he moved on to beer and cognac. He began to deliver these, these long, rambling, drunken sermons to his followers, and if anyone fell asleep, he'd smack them in the head with a four-inch thick club. 
When Marseille Grenier, who was pregnant at the time, ate two more pancakes once than Terrio had allocated for her, he punched her in her side and broke two of her ribs. A favorite punishment would be to force someone to strip naked and stand in the snow for a few hours. No one would fight back. It would be like raising a hand to God himself. When Jacques Fissette left, Terrio told the others that he'd been taken by the devil. And as for the others, all of this served only to make them more obsequious. They would write letters and talk about how they needed him to pray for them so that they were able to overcome their hunger and that they would ask to for forgiveness for stealing if they ate more rations than they were supposed to and that they felt they weren't supposed to be fat and that they needed God's help in maintaining their skinniness and not overeating. While Terry was being interrogated and evaluated by a, psycho a psychologist and clinical team, Gabrielle Nadeau, who was our multiple sclerosis patient who was confined to a wheelchair, went into a coma and died shortly thereafter. Um, if her treatment was uh, grape juice and nuts and berries like it was for our leukemia patient, then there is no doubt that she was not ever going to get better. Um, and it was only a matter of time before she died. Terrio wanted to bury her at the foot of the Eternal Mountain, but she was taken by authorities for an autopsy just to be sure. They found no signs of foul play, but Terrio swore that if anyone else died on the, com on the commune, their body should stay there. In early November 1980, a guy named Guy Vier joined the commune. He was the first new member of the group since they had established a healthy living clinic. He had undergo undergone treatment for depression at the same hospital that had declared Terrio mentally sound. And after hearing about Terrio on television, Vier decided that he would head into the hills to meet him. After passing Gabrielle's examination, Vier was permitted to stay at the commune in a storage shed away from Terrio and his family. He would get a small wood stove, a case of 24 bottles of home-brewed beer, two hens, a rooster, and one meal a day. Vier's job, in addition to his normal responsibilities of chopping wood, storing food rations for the winter, and continuing construction on uh, Moses' growing wood cabin palace, would be to babysit the group's three non-Terrio children. That's Samuel Gierge, age two, Miriam Gierge, age four, and Simon Uete, age two, who is the son of Solange and Claude during their brief marriage. Terrio had three children of his own living in the commune, one by Giselle, Solange, and Nicole each, but Vier was mentally unstable, and so it was said that he was only fit to look after the quote-unquote animals, the children that weren't rocks. On March 23, 1980, Terrio organized a party. His two sons from his marriage with Francine Grenier, Rock Jr. and Francois, who were 12 and 10 at the time, were coming to live with their father in the commune. Vier, of course, was not invited because his job was to look after the three outsider children. Now, what follows, depending on which version you believe, um, is a bit hard to hear, but... There are two versions regarding what happened that night. The official version is the one that was given in court by Terrio, Guy Vier, and most of the commune members. According to this version, Samuel was crying that night and he was keeping Vier awake. Vier lost his temper and started screaming at the two-year-old to be quiet. 
He then picked him up by the throat and plunged his fist into the child's face five or six times. The next day, Terrio discovered what had happened and placed Samuel under the care of Gabrielle, who was the nurse for the group. Allegedly, baby Samuel's head was flopping around on his neck and his penis had swelled up. Rock took a pair of scissors and after sterilizing them in alcohol, lanced Samuel's penis to permit urine to flow out. The next morning, Samuel was found dead. This is the account that is accepted by the courts. According to Savage Messiah, however, which is a book by Paul Killian and Ross Lavare, which is the one that was going to cost me $245, so I haven't read it. Giselle tells a different story. According to her, Samuel's face was bruised the morning of the 24th of March, but there was nothing else wrong with him. However, Terrio decided that the child needed to be circumcised, and so he used 94% ethanol solution and used that to sterilize the scissors. But he also poured some into a rubber bulb, and he squeezed that into Samuel's mouth to use as anesthesia. This may have been enough to cause Samuel's death by alcohol poisoning. After hearing of her baby's death, Marseille Grenier just went back to work. At supper, Terrio suggested that they burn the baby's remains as they... If they buried them, birds or bears might get into them. And Marseille and Jacques agreed. Claude Oyette did the honors and life at the commune went back to normal. And for six months, everything went smoothly. But one night in September, a very drunken rock became angry with Vier for some infraction and decided that he should stand trial for his crime of the previous March. He appointed Jacques Gary, the baby's father, to be the judge. Uh, Giselle would be the prosecution. Claude Oyette would be the lawyer. And Rock's other six wives would act as a jury. The trial lasted one hour and the verdict was unanimous, not guilty by reason of insanity. But Terrio was not to be satisfied with this decision. And a couple of hours later, he took Jacques aside and suggested they castrate Pierre. Gary didn't like the idea, but Terrio called another vote anyway, and a jury of 10, including his son, 12-year-old Rock Jr., only three voted against the new motion, Jacques Gierge, his wife Marseille, and Giselle. Everyone else was now strongly in favor of castrating Vier. Vier, who had stayed quiet through all of this, was obviously not keen to the idea, but somehow Terrio actually talked him into it. He claimed that it would cure Vier's headaches as well as the excessive masturbation that was causing Vier's respiratory difficulties. He explained that in the hierarchy of the group, Vier was a slave, and if he underwent the castration, he would become a eunuch, which would be a step up. He asked Vier to write a letter of consent and said that he wouldn't make Vier sign it if he didn't want to. Vier signed it anyway. Then Terrio had him lie on a kitchen table and Gabrielle fetched the medical instruments, an elastic band, a razor blade, a magnifying glass, a pair of tweezers, and the ethanol. The operation itself was painless and his testicles were discarded in a Kleenex. And although Vier's scrotum bled for a week, Gabrielle gave him new saltwater compresses every 20 minutes and ensured he got plenty of iron in his diet. Paul Vier never complained of another headache. On the other hand, Terrio felt that now Vier was a security risk and enjoyed tormenting him, beating him, and playing games in which he would instruct his followers to pierce Vier through the chest with knives and bleed him to death, only to call it off like God called off Abraham from sacrificing Isaac at the very last minute. 
But on November 5th, Vieira escaped to a nearby village where he told the villagers that a baby had died after being kicked by a horse. The police raided the compound, arrested Terrio and Samuel's parents, and relocated the seven children to foster homes. They found the, chil the children's remains, and the commune members told the story of Vier beating the child. They also found Vier's letter of consent to the castration operation, and even the ballots that had been used for the vote. No one questioned by the police was at all upset or even embarrassed about what had happened or having been involved and having involved a 12-year-old boy in this decision process. After the coroner determined that the group was criminally responsible for the death of Samuel Gierge, the police made the following charges. Rock Terrio, Jacques Gier, Marseille Grenier, Gabriel Lavalli, and Guy Vier were all charged with criminal negligence causing bodily harm to Samuel. Claude Oyet, who burned the body, was charged with obstruction of justice. Jacques and Marseille were charged with neglect towards their oldest daughter, now five, and Claude and Solange Boyard were similarly charged for their treatment of Simon, who was now three. Terrio and Lavalli were also charged with bodily harm with intent to mutilate Guy Vier. All of the accused pleaded not guilty. Jacques, Marseille, Claude, Solange, and Guy were all released on their own recognizance on the condition that they not return to the cabin. Terrio and Lavalli were denied bail as they were held to be a danger to society. At the end of the nine-month trial, during which the commune members moved to the town of New Carlisle, where the trial was held, all parties were found guilty of all charges. Marseille and Solange got three years probation. Jacques Guerrier and Claude Oyette received six months in prison and three years probation for child abandonment. Guy Vier was sentenced but later acquitted for mental incompetence and returned to the mental hospital. Gabrielle Lavie was sentenced to nine months in jail and three years probation. Rock Terrio was sentenced to two years less a day in prison and three years probation on each of two charges to be served concurrently. He was transferred to a detention center in Quebec City. Now, the members of the group distributed themselves between four apartments in Quebec City to be near their leader while he did his time. The police raided the cabin um, at Gaspé, and then they burned it to the ground and bulldozed the ashes. Terrio began to assemble notes for a book that he published in Quebec City in November of 1983, and the whole thing seemed to, frankly, be over. See, the issue with that is, is that it wasn't over. It was just getting started. Rock Terrio was released in February of 1984, and his followers wanted to stay together in the city, perhaps in a rented house. Well, here's the thing. Moses had other ideas. They would go back into the bush and start all over again, this time on Lot 4, Confession Concession 5, in Somerville Township, Burnt River, near the town of Lindsay in Victoria County, Ontario. He had stopped drinking, he told them all, and there wouldn't be any more violence. After all, as God's emissary, they were obliged to follow him. And in May of 1984, he moved the band to their new home and began the construction of a new cabin as isolated as their old home had been. Terrio designed and assembled a rough sawmill from a chainsaw, a snowmobile engine, snowmobile engine and some bicycle parts. He also designed a horse-drawn treadmill to mill water from a spring on a neighboring concession. Rock, now calling himself Rock, the angel, 
angelicization of his French name, which I should have said that in the beginning, would have been Roche Terrio, but we have been calling him Rock the entirety of this podcast. He commissioned an A-frame cabin, a two-story house with a kitchen, a bakery, a maple sugar shack, a smokehouse, a root cellar, and a stone shank sanctuary or altar upon which he could commune with God. This was all built by his two male and nine female followers, four of whom were pregnant and all of whom were responsible for the commune's 10 children, age ranging from age 1 to 15. They worked through the summer in long pants and sweaters to keep the mosquitoes away. Rock established a new hierarchy for the group and assigned each one of the wives different responsibilities. The lowest of them all, of course, was Marseille Grenier. Ontario forbade Jacques and Marseille from sleeping together and encouraged Jacques to beat her if she talked back to him or Rock, even though she was pregnant. Rock also convinced Jacques that a birthmark she had looked like 666. He eventually ordered Marseille to live apart from everyone else in her own hut with her two children until Rock later accepted her eldest daughter into the main group. Nobody who visited the compound from Somerville had any idea of the group's strict and brutal organization, nor did they have any idea of the group's past in Quebec. The members of the commune were regarded as eccentric but hardworking neighbors. Victoria County, however, had different ideas about welfare than they had in Quebec. The group was refused funding on the basis that the group constituted an institution rather than a family. This only served as proof that the outside world was hostile to the group's way of life and reinforced their alienation and isolation. As far as Rock was concerned, if the rest of the world wouldn't voluntarily give them what they needed, they would have to take it. He began ordering his wives to steal from local grocers um, in the town of Lindsay, um, and they would take anything and everything they needed but could no longer afford to buy. They even made special jackets with huge inner pockets to facilitate their sprees of petty crime. On January 31st, 1985, a police officer caught Jaquise Gary sh- shoplifting, and nearby he tracked down Gabrielle, Claude, Nicole, and Rock Jr., who had 50 feet of rope coiled around his waist. For what reason, I have no clue. Between the five of them, they had lifted $453.37 in goods. Their sentence was to be banned from shopping in Lindsay ever again. So interestingly enough, nobody called the police or decided that they should, (laughs) well, the police officer caught them, but nobody thought they should press charges and they just let them go, even though they had stolen $450 worth of goods. So after they were banned from shopping, Rock encouraged his followers to start hitting up their parents for money. And if their parents refused, it would only reinforce what he always said about them. And if they agreed, the group would have money to continue its way of living in isolation. In fact, Rock was so brainwashed, had brainwashed his followers so much that they were thinking negative thoughts about their parents. And some of them begged him to not make them call. The typical response, of course, was that the girls could have the money, but only if they left Rock. And this, of course, was not going to happen. So the group began selling fruit and later pastry, and this proved to be a great success. And so Rock organized the group into a company, and he began calling them the Anthill Kids because they worked together like a nest of ants. Though the members of Grok's group still had to subsist on corn and potatoes, at least now they were making some money and everything seemed to be going well. 
But as Rock became less desperate to survive, he became increasingly bored. And as he became bored, he began to drink again. He stopped working and again began to use his aching guts and his ulcers as an excuse. And he prescribed himself a case of beer for any pains he had. And when he was drunk, he'd go on these long rants about treasures, which consisted of worthless costume jewelry. And the rest of the group was just too terrified to do anything but feign interest. He would also play the wives off each other, manipulating their self-esteem to his whim. He would also organize no-holds-barred nude wrestling matches between the women, or he would put a man in the middle of the circle and tell the women to hit and kick him. Sometimes he would join in the matches, but then the rules changed. If you scored a hit on him, it would come out of your food rations. So needless to say, things are ramping up. They now have the name that they are notoriously known for. And I think this is where we will stop for now. We will pick this up with episode two. I don't believe in dragging things out over to span of two weeks. I absolutely hate that. So if you were listening to this, part one will be out and part two should be available at the same time so that you can continue listening to this. Um, Again, if you like the work that we're do that I'm doing, if you like listening to the stories or you have any suggestions for other things we should cover, you can email the pod at murdervpod at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at murdervpod and it is the same on Instagram. Or you can DM me or follow my personal Twitter and that is at BJ underscore Burton and that is the same on Instagram. As always, please, please, please support the podcast by liking, rating, subscribing, sharing with your friends. We are available on all platforms and anywhere that you can listen to dope podcasts. And thank you again for tuning in. Again, part two will be available as soon as part one is available on Tuesday so that you can enjoy them both at the same time. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for subscribing. Thank you so much for rocking with me. And again, this is Murder Be Wrote. And I am your host, V.